morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds today. We have a slight delay because making smoothies was a little longer time than, than some of our breakfasts. And that's part, as you remember, of the culinary medicine program that's going on this year. We're providing breakfast before Grand Rounds, all with the idea of educating ourselves about healthy eating so we can talk to our patients and our families about that as well. Typically, we have a quiz. Uh, only a few of you tend to answer in this quiz, but you know, feel free to put your bold responses there. The, today's question was, how many servings of fish or seafood per week are recommended per current dietary guidelines? And the answer is two. And then the bonus question was, which groups should limit their mercury-containing fish? Pregnant women, but also nursing women, young children, and low renal clearance patients. So those are the answers. And picked out of a hat randomly with the right answer was our own Bob McClellan. <laughs> now, one, one could argue that he did win last time and this time, so he knows a lot about these things. And we may have to restrict him to three, right? And you win a 10 of <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to have my and our friend and colleague here today, Gil Welch, to give us medical grand rounds. Such an irreverent soul. And uh, we, we, are, we are delighted to have you here, Gil, all tongue-in-cheek. You were an economics major at Harvard as an undergraduate. You went to the University of Cincinnati Medical School for your MD degree. You then did a rotating internship and left to become the chief medical officer in Bethel, Alaska, uh, in the Indian Health Service. You spent a couple of years there and then became a VA Robert Wood Johnson clinical <coughs> scholar uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, where you then uh, achieved your MPH as well. We were successful in drafting you here after that, where you joined as an internist at the VA Medical Center, and you've continued in that uh, arena. In in addition to that, you uh, began your academic career here as an assistant professor, and you have ascended up the ladder by a variety of activities, including co-directing the VA Outcomes Group, spending an awful lot of time helping us to understand the value of our testing, became an associate professor, and then a full professor in the year 2000, both in medicine and also in TDI and in community and family medicine continuing on your journey to educate all of us and at all the levels. You're also an adjunct professor at Dartmouth College and at the Tuck School of Business, uh, delivering content in those arenas for those learners, again, around the issue of uh, appropriateness of testing, understanding data, understanding the literature. Uh, what you do is make us understand what we do and put it in the context of what we should do. You're a prolific writer, both for the known high impactful medical journals, but also for the lay press. And, and I mean that you're helping all of our patients and all of us to understand the implications of what we do and to help make better decisions. Uh, for all of that, we are in awe, and I am delighted that you accepted my invitation to come and speak with us today because I know what a wonderful speaker you are. So thank you for being here, Gil. Lowering ex 
expectations. <laughs> All right, um, so good morning. Um, and uh, this is a medical gram round, so I'd like to start in a fairly conventional approach uh, and start with a uh, case. Uh, and Mr. Baker, not his real name, um, a 60-year-old former smoker calls me complaining of hoarseness. Um, he had been hoarse for six weeks, but otherwise uh, felt well. I asked our ENT in White River Junction, was just down the hall at the time, which is really nice, to see him. And he found and removed a small vocal cord uh, cancer. Mr. Baker's voice returned to normal. He was given a short course of radiation and told to come back if his hoarseness uh, returned. Pretty simple. And that would be the end of the story, except someone along the way ordered a chest x-ray. Please feel free to come down. I hate having people stand. you. There's plenty of seats down here if you want to. I won't ask any questions. Well, I might. But, um. <laughs> All right. Now, some doctors might argue that he should have had a chest x-ray anyway, given the possibility of lung cancer. But I would counter, you know, once we'd found the cancer responsible uh, for his hoarseness, we did not need to go looking for a second cancer. But the horse was out of the barn. <laughs> OK, this is the first draft of the talk. I should have All right, we'll, we'll leave that. Um, OK, now, although Mr. Baker's lungs looked fine, the radiologist expressed some concern about a possible widening of the mediastinum. And because that widening could represent another cancer, the radiologist suggested a CT scan of the chest. Now, the CT scan of Mr. Baker's chest was normal, and the radiologist concluded that the mediastinum was fine and the chest x-ray had been uh, misleading. But of course, as you all know, the CT scan contained information beyond the chest. You know, whenever we get to, get to the back, down and low in the lungs, you know, we're, we're cutting through a fair amount of abdomen. And there on Mr. Baker's right kidney was a mass just about the size of a golf ball. It was almost certainly cancer. That was a surprise. Now, that was an incidental omen. Now, the assumption I think a lot of us work under, a lot of our patients work under, is that it never hurts to get more information. And I think there's a disturbing truth underneath this, that you know, data overload can scare patients, and it can distract doctors from what's important. So let me just remind you, you know, summarize the case quickly. Hoarseness progresses to kidney cancer. Now, I never learned this in medical school. Um, and of course, it doesn't in terms of disease progression, but it does in terms of medical care uh, progression. So let's go back to the case. And the urologist was sure what to do. Look, here's an otherwise healthy guy who has kidney cancer. Yes, it's major surgery, but because he's healthy, he will sail through it. We've got the chance to save this man's life. Very powerful uh, kind of language. But Mr. Baker and I were less sure. The 30-day mortality from nephrectomy in Medicare data is about 2%. About 10% of patients will develop a chronic uh, renal failure. And Mr. Baker just couldn't understand. You know, He was hoarse. He feels better. And now someone's talking about taking his kidney out. And of course, that patient interest in you know, really started to influence me. Said, well, why are we doing this? He wanted to know 
why we couldn't simply check it again in another three months. Sort of reasonable. The cancer surgeon persisted, and now she had statistics. She told me that because of early detection, the average five-year survival for patients with kidney cancer had increased from 34% in 1950 to 62% currently. Well, this is just a story. It's a true story, but it's only an anecdote. So let, let's get to the population picture. And here are the SEER data for renal cell carcinoma. We're looking at 1975-2010, and the mortality rate is stable. The incidence rate is not stable. It's up twofold. So here we are at our first audience participation point. What would you guess has happened to the number of nephrectomies over this period? <laughs> Well, it's about double. It's almost exactly double. Okay, tougher question. What would you guess has happened to the survival of the average patient? Stable mortality, more patients. Survival of the average patient? Way up. Now, toughest question. Is anything good happening? Really tough. After a long discussion with Mr. Baker, we made a shared decision simply to follow his cancer with CT scans every three months, then every six months. At times, it seemed to grow a little bit. At other times, it seemed to regress a little bit. Mr. Baker later died from pneumonia. He had an autopsy. He had renal cell carcinoma. But beyond that one kidney, no other cancer was found. Mr. Baker had a diagnosis of kidney cancer for about a decade. He was never treated for kidney cancer, never developed symptoms of kidney cancer. He did not die from kidney cancer. The diagnosis was information he wished, and quite frankly, I wished, I never had. Now, I'm about to argue that more information is not always better. And I'm always a little nervous, and like I'm so anti-science. <laughs> and, and in fact, the Earth is at the middle of the solar system. <laughs> and Galileo was wrong. <laughs> and I want to be clear, I think we need more information, right? Uh, in particular, I'm a strong advocate for obtaining more information about the effects of medical interventions, information on the full range of effects, you know, information on both the benefits and the harm. But I'm not particularly interested in more information about myself. And after Rich's introduction, you might feel the same way. But um, <laughs> here I'm referring to clinical information, information specific to a single individual. Um, some might call it biometrics. Um, and you know, it's detailed data on the anatomic, physiologic, biochemical, or genetic status of me. So what I'd like to do this morning, the next 40 minutes or so, is, is go over what I think are two lessons from Mr. Baker, and then talk about the value of information when you are sick. And I'll talk about four randomized trials there. And then I'll talk about the value of information if you are well. And we'll talk a little bit about genetic testing and, and monitoring. And for those of you who think I don't know my Roman numerals, uh, you know, in between we'll talk something about the semantics of the word. Um, information. So let's start with Mr. Baker. Two lessons. One, uh, we need to work to reduce extraneous data uh, collection. And the second is we need to think about the word cancer differently, because it does drive us to do things that many other diagnoses never would. Uh, this is a torso, um, and this is the diaphragm. 
Um, and of course, you know, with breathing. The, now, now you have some idea what I do with breathing. <laughs> you want to see that again? Ed, you like that? What does Gil do all the time? Yeah, okay. This is an abdominal CT. It's the curvature of the abdomen that, that you know forces the the, 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 the cross diaphragmatic uh, uh, issues in, in in imaging, and in in White River Junction uh, in the quick chart review that uh, Dr. Sorovich did, uh, one quarter of the recommendations for follow-up testing on abdominal CT um, are for chest findings in our little hospital. And chest CT has the mirror image problem, just as it did Mr. Baker. And to see the entire lung, you start getting abdominal findings. And in White River Junction, over half the recommendations for follow-up testing on chest CT are for abdominal findings. And I know many of you know this perfectly well. Now, cross-diaphragmatic findings are totally unintended, right? And it's not like we're asking for information on the other side of the diaphragm. There are no symptoms leading to doctors to look for something to be wrong on the other side of the diaphragm. We didn't order the test on the other side of the diaphragm. Although not purposeful, the setting is otherwise analogous uh, to screening, screening for which there's no evidence of benefit, yet has obvious harms. So here's an idea. Is this a reasonable standard? suppress cross-diaphragmatic imaging data in the CT algorithm, thus hiding it from the radiologist. Never let him even see it. Is this technically possible? Yes, it actually is. One of my classmates works for Siemens. I asked him, could you guys design it so you just blacked out everything? Of course we could. You guys would have to ask for it. Now, let me just ask you that question. You know, is that a reasonable standard? Is that a crazy, radical idea? Or is that low-hanging fruit? That's something we have to think about. And then we need to think about the word cancer differently. And I know you all know this. You've heard me say, you know, not, not all cellular, cellular abnormalities labeled cancer will ultimately matter to the patient. Now, I want to share something with you that I just found this past year. It's an article from Life magazine uh, called The Plea Against the Blind Fear of Cancer. It's uh, written by Dr. George Kreil. He worked at the uh, Cleveland uh, Clinic, a cancer surgeon. And I'll, let me just read one section to you. He said, in clinical practice, to say that a person has cancer gives us little information about the possible course of his disease as to say he has infections. There are dangerous infections that may be fatal, and there are harmless infections that, may be, uh, that are self-limited or may disappear. The same is true of cancers. Cancer is not a single entity. It is a broad spectrum of diseases related to each other only in name. This is Life magazine from 1955, the year I was born. Uh, a rude reminder that I've never had an original idea in my life. <laughs> really, really amazing. And I think it's Dr. Kreil that introduced this analogy of the birds, the rabbits, and the turtles. And the idea of early detection is try to fence in this barnyard of cancers. But the birds are already gone. They're flying away. They're the most aggressive cancers. There's the ones that have already spread by the time they're detectable. You can't help by early detection there. They're already gone. It's the rabbits that are moving around and can be a problem. If you build enough fences, these are the cancers that are arguably most likely to be helped by screening. But then they're the turtles. These are the indolent cancers that are not going anywhere anyway. There's no point for any fences. 
And the uncomfortable reality is there are a lot of turtles out there. At least a third of adults harbor small thyroid cancers. About a third of women age 40 to 49 harbor small breast cancers. Over half of men over age 60 harbor small prostate cancers. And less impressive, but it looks like somewhere between 1 to 3% of adults will have unsuspected kidney cancers. There's a lot of turtles out there. So we need to think about how to work to reduce extraneous data collection and in doing so, think about the word cancer differently. So let's think about the value of information when you are sick and consider four randomized trials. And we'll do so quite quickly, but just give you a little flavor of how what people have found. The first trial is a VA cooperative study on enhanced information of flow. And the objective was to reduce readmission rates by enhancing communication. And I'll detail that a little bit more in a second. Let me tell you who the patients are. They're 1,400 inpatients with diabetes, lung disease, or heart disease. They are sick. Their expected readmission rate is about half of them are expected to be readmitted in six months. And the question is whether they could reduce that number. The intervention arm, the control arm is going to get usual care. The intervention arm has discharge planning with a primary care practitioner and a dedicated study nurse. The nurse calls the patient within 48 hours of discharge. And the primary care practitioner sees the patient within seven days of discharge. And here's the amazing part. The patients were given the ability to page their primary care practitioner. And they made use of that ability. There were about seven calls per patient over six months. So most of the patients were calling their primary care practitioners. <coughs> Ready? All right, so let's get the findings. What happened to clinic visits? What was the effect of the intervention on clinic visits? More or less? More. More, sure. That's actually, maybe that's part of the intervention, about 70% more. What was the effect on readmission? Less? No, it was more, significantly more, 19% 14%. And one of the things I just love is how this was written in the New England Journal. This is how, how the author of the study described it. The effect of our intervention on hospital use was contrary to that predicted by our hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> health status, there is no improvement in health status. Mortality, there was no difference in mortality. Well, actually, there was a slight increase. <laughs> well, we don't know. It could be just chance. It's a chance. I mean, I don't want to make too much out of that. It's, maybe it's just a chance. It, it, was just, it was not statistically significant. Now, I, of course, this is a fuzzy information. F fuzzy uh, intervention. You know, it, it's facilitating some unspecified information. It's hard to know really what happened here, except that it didn't work. So let's get a serious sort of piece of technology and, and measure something we can all understand, a, a variable that we all can kind of recognize. And um, I, I'll give you a little picture of this. I'm a little nervous because Ed Catherwood's here, and he knows more about this stuff than I do. But I, I'm going to talk about it anyway. I mean, I, I, I think that's a pacemaker, it, 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 you know, and this is a tip. And, and it could be an implantable defibrillator. And the question is, what's the impedance between the two? And that's an easy variable that can, you know, we can really measure it. It's a number, and we can actually see what that impedance is. And we can send that out to a computer and sort of monitor someone's impedance, or, or maybe we might send it out to a cell phone, right? To, oh, sorry, smartphone. That's a smartphone. No. So here's, here's the idea. You know, you've got two points uh, which, where you already have electrical equipment. And the question is, what's the, you know, measuring the impedance, the flow of electricity between the two. If there's a lot of air in the lung, 
you don't expect a lot of electricity to move. But if there's fluid in the lung, you know, all of a sudden you will have low impedance to flow and you'll be able to recognize that. And then you can imagine the case where we might be interested in that kind of information. So here's the second trial. It's on pulmonary impedance. And the objective, again, is to reduce readmission rates. But now it's with real-time impedance monitoring. Who are we going to do this in? 335 outpatients with heart failure who have implantable defibrillators. They all have the equipment uh, already uh, in them. And the intervention is simply to turn on the impedance monitor in patients randomized to the intervention limb. The rest will have the impedance turned off. And then patients would be, uh, with abnormal impedance, would be alerted with an audible tone. That's how it was described in the article, alerted with an audible tone. What would you call that? What? Alerted with an audible tone. What's the normal thing? Oh, alarm. Your lung is now filling with oh. fluid. <laughs> clinic visits. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. yeah, three times more, right? Three times more. Did it reduce readmission rates? No. No, it didn't. Significantly more. 36 versus 22%. Any effect on mortality? No, no difference. Well, actually, there was a slight increase. But again, it was not statistically significant, so I'd take that out. That's not fair. <laughs> Now, this was the editorial uh, written on it, which was a lovely editorial. And I actually have to thank David Malenka. I don't know if he's here, but uh, he, he sent this to me. Um, and let me just read you the first uh, line. Parents of teenagers will recognize the following scenario. Parent comprehensive lecturally, comprehensively lecturing the teenager on some topic at hand, carefully outlining the rationale for a parental decision, invoking extensive reasoning of why one option is better than another for good adolescent decision making, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Teenager looks away, rolls his eyes, and mutters, too much information. <laughs> too much information. In making clinical decisions, we as clinicians generally believe that more information characterizing our patients' disease processes allow us to make better decisions about therapeutic direction, thereby ultimately improving their quality of life and outcomes. He goes on to say, of course, like many things we would like to believe, this is not always the case. Trial number three, searching for cancer metastases. Here the objective is to find cancer metastases early and reduce mortality. The patients are 1,200 women with breast cancer. The intervention is intensive diagnostic follow-up, specifically looking for metastatic disease to the lung and the bone. Some of you may be familiar with this trial. Were we able to find metastases earlier? Yes. Yeah, of course we were. Did it affect mortality? No, it did not. It's no difference. Now, here's the question. How would you characterize this combination of finding? Is this benefit, no effect, or harm? That's certainly the way most oncologists, I think, summarize this study, that this is just information that had a lot of disutility. Seeking information about early signs of metastatic cancer can be very scary. 
New cough, geez, could be a MET, let's get a chest CT. Ankle pain, could be a MET, let's get a bone scan. I said the mortality was no different, but again, it actually went the wrong direction. Now this trial is 20 years old. Let's move forward 20 years to something just this year. Same basic interest to find cancer metastasis early and reduce mortality. Here, we're going to look at patients with colon cancer, 1,200 men and women with colon cancer. The intervention was intensive diagnostic follow-up, specifically looking for metastatic disease in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. These patients in the intervention group basically got a total body CT and a CEA. Metastasis, could they find more metastases? Yes, they found more What was its effect on surgery? Increased. There is a lot more surgery. Mortality? There's no difference. And it's not statistically significant, but again, it's a slight increase. That's four for four. And I didn't, you know, I'm showing you trials where information didn't help, but I didn't select them based on their mortality findings. I'll tell you that. I was surprised. Seeking information about early signs of metastatic cancer doesn't help cancer patients live longer. But it does scare many and leads a few to live longer with the knowledge that they have incurable disease. They are subjected to additional therapies and their toxicities earlier at a time they would otherwise be asymptomatic. I think it, more information has disutility in these patients. So the assumption is it never hurts to get more information, but I think the disturbing truth is data overload can scare patients and distract doctors from what's important. So now let's talk about information semantics. You know, by now you're beginning to say, oh, is information even the right word? You know, it's such a central word in our culture. Now, information is one word, but underneath information is something else. And it's something I spend a lot of time with. It's data. It's just data. It's, it's, it's numbers. And then there's something that I think we all really care about, and there's less of that, and that's up higher. And that's useful knowledge. And it's probably useful for us to distinguish these categories, distinguish data from information and useful knowledge. I'd say pulmonary impedance is just that. It's a data point. It's a measurable data point. It only becomes information if it leads to a reliable prediction that you will develop heart failure. And it only becomes useful knowledge if we have a course of action that reliably lowers that likelihood. Data are not reliably useful knowledge. Some are, but a lot of them are not. And more data can be distracting. And it's not just true in medicine. The distraction of having too much data is not unique to medicine. I don't know if anyone, anyone have an idea what that picture is? <laughs> this is World War II, and this is our bombers dropping chaff strips of aluminum foil, which is basically meant to overload the radar gunners with data, right? It's just a distracting technique used by the military that's actually still used today, right? Except we, instead of using aluminum for distraction, we'll use heat because that's what the heat-seeking missiles are looking for. So distract the people trying to shoot at you. That's, you know, because all of a sudden they can't see what the forest for the trees. 
Psychologists have, have, have long recognized that consumers facing too many options can be distracted from making an actual decision. And intelligence analysts are increasingly questioning the utility of mass surveillance simply because there's so much overwhelming information they can't see the forest for the trees. More data is not a uniform good. When faced with the problem of searching for the needle in the haystack, throwing more hay on the pile only makes the needle harder to find. You can just be overwhelmed with data. So now let's move to thinking about what we might want if we're well and talk a little bit about genetic testing and monitoring. And I want to share another case. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Bruce is a colleague who's an intensivist. He's about my age. Um, uh, and he uh, works in Anchorage, uh, Alaska. And you know, he's in the intensive care unit. He, he, he has a, a pretty good feeling about data. Because you know, I don't think there's a place in our, our business where there's more data minute to minute than uh, the intensive care unit. And he understands how too much data can be a problem. When he turned 50, he decided to be screened uh, for colon cancer. Um, his primary care practitioner was happy to oblige, but also wanted to do some uh, other tests, a chest x-ray. He's an intensivist who's a pulmonologist. <laughs> and he said, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I don't, want I don't want a chest x-ray. I don't need a chest x-ray. Cholesterol tech, no, no thanks. I don't want to check for it. And, and, and then the, the primary care practitioner, as Bruce described it to me, you know, got a little bit frustrated. He said, at least give, let me check an EKG. <laughs> now, he, Bruce had a pretty good idea he'd have a, you know, a normal EKG. He, he, he's a big cyclist, you know, one of these guys that you know, does 100 plus miles a week. And this is Anchorage in the background along the Cook Inlet and has some great bike trails. And then the minute it starts snowing, he's a heavy duty Nordic. He is one of these extreme, you know, he, he's, he has said, oh, you know, I have a pretty good chance of having a normal EKG. And, and he didn't want to be labeled as a difficult patient. <laughs> you know, you want to say, you know, you don't want to, oh my God, I don't, I don't want to be a difficult patient. So he says, okay, get an EKG. So um, he, he gets an EKG and, and it turns out to not, you know, sort of kind of go off the chart sort of EKG. It's wildly abnormal. And he said, oh my god. He said, you got to get an echo. He gets an echo. And his walls are really, really thick of the, of the heart. And everybody gets nervous and says, you know, what you really need to do is get a cardiac MRI. Now, a cardiac MRI is not the simple test of an EKG. There's all this stuff about syncing it with the heart and, and what plane to get and so forth. And, Bruce really wanted to go to a place that did a lot of cardiac MRIs. He said, if I'm going to do this, I, you know, I really want to go to a place that has a lot of experience with this. So he went to the Mayo Clinic. And, the Mayo, and actually, I just went to the Mayo Clinic. Not as a patient, but I, I, I gave a talk there. It's a very shiny place. How many people have been to the Mayo Clinic? <laughs> so it, 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 it's a pretty, pretty, pretty nice place. It has an atrium that beats ours. Can we get a <laughs> I can't. I want an atrium like that. Come on. And, and for those of you who haven't been to Rochester, Minnesota, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible town because it's all healthcare. It's all healthcare all the time. It's, it's a real company town. And, and I want to be clear that, that Bruce would be the first to have some really positive things to say about Mayo. Uh, as a physician, 
He gets help from them in Anchorage. They're, they're always willing to help with difficult cases, whether or not the case is going to be referred to. So he's very happy with them as a physician. And as a patient, he could not believe how quickly he got so much done. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and it, it was efficient. If you're going to do it, you know, let's get it done now. So he, he had the cardiac MRI. He had a bunch of blood tests. He had the uh, EKG and the echo repeated. He, he had uh, overnight uh, pulse oximetry with uh, electrocardiographic monitoring. He was put on a bicycle and uh, got up to, you know, to a, you know they, they really stressed his heart, monitored in real time, and he passed with flying colors. So he sat down with the male cardiologist to learn the final diagnosis, non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So what should I do? And the cardiologist looked and thought about it a little bit. And he said, well, come back and see us in three years. <laughs> now, that's not a very satisfying answer. <laughs> but it's probably exactly the right one. Here's the American Card College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association 2011 guideline. It is recommended that comorbidities that may contribute to cardiovascular disease, hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, obesity, be treated in compliance with relative existing guidelines. Let me translate that for you. Treat them the way you would any other patient. That's basically what they're saying. So there's really nothing for Bruce to do except now worry. You know, he wants to get back on his bike. The, 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 the uh, guideline goes on to say, you know, most effective individuals will probably achieve a normal life expectancy without disability or the necessity for major therapeutic interventions. On the other hand, in some patients, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with disease complications that may be profound with the potential to result in disease progression or premature death. Now, thinking about that, going back on a bicycle, wondering about that sensation in his chest. Is that heartburn? Is that a muscle spasm? Or is that cardiac? It changes all his priors about what, you know, so what, what, what should he be aware of? Oh, the male cardiologist had one suggestion, genetic testing. <laughs> now, it turns out that uh, non-instructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with 1,400 mutations on eight genes. And Bruce could be tested for some of the more common uh, mutations. And it's only a few years away. He could be tested for all. And if Bruce tested positive, he could worry more, both about himself and his four children. And his children could be tested, so they could worry too, along with Bruce and his wife. And he said, no. He said, I'm stopping that train. That is too much information. I don't want to know that. I, it's, there's nothing I can do about it. We've got a lot of opportunities for information now. Right, just a single variable. We could measure pulmonary impedance. We could measure cardiac impedance. Of course we could. We could measure renal impedance. Rich, here's one for you. A huh? oh, oh, brain impedance. Yeah, we got a brain. Yeah. I was called an airhead in high school. I bet mine's high. Yeah. Uh, here's yours, bowel impedance. What do you think about that? Should we think about that? <laughs> Brian, this is for you, yeah. How about that? Your bladder is now filling with fluid. <laughs> wow, that'd be.
be useful. And that's all I want. Yeah. And then, of course, we can be monitoring temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, blood pressure, oxygen saturation, EKGs. We can monitor blood sugars, serum sodium, CRP, CEA, CA125, immunosignature. We could be doing all that. There are millions of pixels of structural data available in each one of us. There are millions of bit of metabolic data we could all obtain. And uh, there are three billion data points in your genome. There is no shortage of data we could be collecting. Three billion data points on your genome. But that only becomes information if it leads to a reliable prediction that you will develop symptoms. And it only becomes, and, and that the mutation for Huntington's disease certainly fits in that category. It's a highly, highly penetrant gene. It is a reliable prediction that you will develop symptoms. But it only be, does it become useful knowledge? You, you know, only if we had a course of action that reliably lowers that likelihood. And thus, most patients think, you know, that isn't useful knowledge. Now, you go up to the, 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 the breast cancer, BRCA1 and 2 genes. Now we do have a course of action that reliably lowers that uh, a likelihood of, of breast cancer and ovarian cancer death. We, we do have an intervention for that. And it is real information. But for some women, it's not useful not. They decide they don't want to know that because they don't want to intervene early. And so this makes another pretty basic point that what constitutes useful knowledge also involves some value judgments. And we've got to admit that. There's clearly some value judgments about what becomes really useful knowledge. Most genomic data, however, are just that. They're just data. There are few mutations that are powerful predictors of clinical disease that may represent useful knowledge to some people. BRCA1 and 2, Huntington's disease, cystic fibrosis, of course. But there are thousands of variants that are weakly and irregularly associated with disease. Depends on which study you see and which disease and so forth. And you can imagine we'd be telling people that your genome shows you your risk of breast cancer is 50% higher than average, not five times higher than average. Your risk of Alzheimer's disease is 20% higher than average. Your risk of lung cancer is 50% lower than average. Your risk of heart disease is 20% lower than average. And there's considerable debate about the accuracy of each estimate. We could be telling people that. Now, the real question is, now what? What would you do with this small changes of risk for various diseases. That's a huge question for us. Why, why are we getting this information? We don't know what we would do with it. Well, that doesn't stop some folks. You know, this is 23andMe, and you're familiar with them. They're revolutionary, revolutionizing healthcare for just $99. <laughs> it's really remarkable that you could revolutionize healthcare for $99. <laughs> Maybe we should do it. <laughs> Now, the FDA put the hammer down on 23andMe last year, and we'll see how long that hammer goes down. I don't know, because it was unclear whether the genomic data even provides accurate information. There's still so much unclarity about the, what these small changes and variants really mean, much less useful knowledge. What would you do even if it was an accurate estimate, which is a key question. FDA has a long-standing mandate to protect us from snake oil treatments. That's, they've really been interested in that. But I think, I hope, they're now beginning to realize it's every bit as important to protect us from snake oil testing. But you can imagine people say, oh, I just want to know. 
I just want to know it. And, and I understand that information. But we ought to be clear about how little we know and how little this information actually, uh, this data will actually means. You know, how small and uncertain a lot of that genetic information is. It's both small effects and very uncertain. It'll vary from study to study. And the geneticists now have a great term I like, VUST, variance of uncertain significance. I think they stole it from the OBs, from ASCUS, right? They, they <laughs> typical squamous cells of un unknown significance. Um, and how uncertain we are about the potential courses of action, even given a small and certain risk. Now, here's a thought experiment I do on myself um, on this question of how useful small changes in, in risk uh, might be. And, and I ask myself, even if we were sure of the magnitude, that we knew it was a 19% increase in your Alzheimer's disease risk. We were sure of their magnitude. And we were confident we could lower them. That's a huge jump. Confident we could lower them. Would I even be interested in this? And of course, I say this involves some value judgments. And so when I think about this, I think about my father. And this is my father. Um, and uh, this is uh, circa 1970. Uh, this is Boulder, Colorado, just like this morning, after just a nice little uh, 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 snowstorm. My father was a professor of political science, University of Colorado uh, at Boulder. And um, he's wearing a, a coat that was circa 1940. My mother also said, you ought to get a new <laughs> um, and he, he's, he's wearing this god-awful hat that my mother really hated. It had flaps on it. It, had tie it, was, just, it was just awful. Um, and he's got galoshes on. You remember those? You know, he's just, like, what a total embarrassment. <laughs> you know, what a total dweeb. And he looks really serious, but he's actually, he was actually a pretty... Uh, funny guy. At least he thought he was a, a funny guy. Uh, it's funny, my, my daughter has that same thing going on. And so there might be a genetic piece to that. <laughs> Luckily, it skipped a generation. But, uh, <laughs> but now, I don't know how many of you know what Boulder, Colorado was like in 1970. Does anyone have any idea of Boulder in the 70s? You know, it was a pretty colorful town. Right, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. You know, you had the STP family, you had hippies downtown, music always on the street, and bell bottoms, colorful. And that's my father <laughs> walking through. I mean, my high school buddies used to say, "He's so far out. <laughs> He's in." <laughs> he died of colon cancer at age 60. Not too many years after uh, this picture, and here's his boy. Uh, and his boy is into some, uh, you know, rugged outdoor kind of uh, activities. Um, my favorite activity is being a car camper. I don't know if some of you are familiar. This is where you back into a Forest Service campground. You open the back of the car, set up your tent, and light a fire, and make yourself some dinner. So that's, uh, that's my idea of, of fun. And, and I particularly like foods associated with cold. <laughs> I just want to be clear. And so, you know, a couple of brats on the, you know, that's my idea of an, of an that, that's my idea of a good time. I mean, honestly. 
So now I'm thinking about small changes in risk. And how do we even know about the effective process means? Well, of course, it's from nutritional epidemiology. And this is the EPIC study. It's from the International Agency of Research on Cancer. It was done about 10 years ago, a massive nutritional epidemiology study, about a half million uh, Europeans. It followed for five years. They're coming from about 10 European countries. And the finding on this study is uh, that processed meat is associated with a 42% increase in colon cancer uh, development. This is less than 10 grams versus more than 80 grams a day. I don't know, none of us knows how much that means, so let's just talk about what is 80 grams. It's about 10 slices of salami a day or two brats a day. I'm not quite there, but I certainly could be. But you know, so, so, so you get some sense of what, what this means. So I think, I mean, can you imagine? I might actually think about this. Stuff. This is something I might actually uh, care about and wonder about. So, and I said, what constitutes useful knowledge also involves value judgment. So here's a small change in risk. Um, and by the way, there's a confidence. I said there's uncertainty here, you know, and the confidence interval in that 42% increase is somewhere between 9 and 86%. It is. That's, I'm just reporting to you what the study says. Now, that, of course, is a relative change, right? So I can't make any sense of a relative change without some real numbers. So let's get some absolute increase. According to the SEER data, at my age, I'm basically uh, 60, not quite, I face a 1.3% risk of developing colon cancer over the next 10 years. That's my baseline risk. Now I have a, some broad burst, all right? Now, if it goes up 9%, it goes to 1.4%. That's a 9% uh, increase. The 86%, well, that would take me up to 2.4%. Now, what do I think about that? Well, first, I think this is real. I think it's real. Small. <laughs> I think it's real, and I think it's small. And the way I look at it, you're looking at a guy with a 97.6% chance of not developing colon cancer. <laughs> And now there's a developing industry devoted to providing you data about yourself on a continual basis, right? On your, this is M Health, on your smartphone or maybe your smartwatch. Your lung is now filling with fluid. <laughs> uh, now, this is a guy, I do not know him. He looks like a really nice guy. I want you, so I'm not bad-mouthing him at all. I just, uh, I just found it on the net. I want you to listen to it. It's all of a minute and 10 seconds. HealthTel is a um, molecular diagnostics company that's developing technologies for testing your blood for immune signatures. The challenge right now in diagnostics when you go to the doctor is by the time you catch a lot of diseases, it's often too late. So for example, for cancer, but they have to see it uh, on an x-ray or a CT scan or a scope. And so the ideal, of course, is to be able to take um, something less invasive, like a little bit of blood or a sputum sample, and be able to detect that much earlier. Um, the difference in our technology is instead of trying to target the disease itself, we're actually measuring the body's response to the disease. And so what we do is measure that unique signature for each disease. Um, and from that then, with one diagnostic essentially, we can create a signature for cancer, for Alzheimer's disease, for HIV that's very distinct. And so it's a profound disruption of what's currently being done. Our vision of the future is that instead of having to go to the doctor and get reimbursed for a $2,000 test, um, you could actually mail in uh, on a drop of blood, a swab, an envelope, and we would, on a continual basis, monitor your health. Sounds pretty good.
and it's you know, and, and he's got the lab and people are gowned up and, and so <laughs> forth. But it's, uh, it's I, but playing it once isn't really do this. Can, can we just do it once with a color commentary? Just I mean, I just want I just want you to think about really what's what's being said here and how powerful it is. Helltel is a molecular um, diagnostic company that's developing technology for testing of life $2,000. I'm sure we're about to save $2,000. Aren't you confident? He wants you to send a, me a drop of your blood every month. Now, the question is, is this snake oil? This is a big startup now on immunosignatures. No one knows how well immunosignatures predict disease. In fact, if you had to guess, the worst immunosignature to have would be no immunosignature, right? Um, <clears throat> so we don't even know whether this is information. But the more important question for me is what people who otherwise feel well should do about their concerning immunosignature remains totally unanswered. What should we do if we have a concerning immunosignature? Now, I don't want to stifle innovation. I mean, I always feel, OK, God, the guy's a Luddite. You know, what, what, you know I, I don't want to stifle innovation. But wouldn't it be nice if this kind of energy and vision were directed to those who had problems instead of finding and creating new problems for those who do not? I mean, the real incentive here is to get to the big markets. And the big markets are the people who don't have the problems. And that worries me terribly. This is their website. HealthTel, HealthTel one test, knowing saves lives. They do not know that. They have no knowledge of that. Maybe someday in the future, population-wide immunosignature monitoring will simultaneously reduce mortality and health care costs. But I seriously doubt it. I seriously doubt it. M health. Your bladder is now filling. Okay. 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 I'll wrap it up. The value of information is a central tenet of 21st century culture. It's really become a big part of our culture that more information is always good. But it's a tenet that conflates data with useful knowledge. I think we're just sort of in love and we assume every data point is going to provide something useful. I think we've got to keep uh, your eyes, uh, we need to help patients keep, keep their eye on the ball, and we need to keep our eye on the ball, and consider how more data will change what you do. 
If you are sick, of course, we expect diagnostic testing, but we should expect it to be prudent. If you worry you're being excessively tested, I think there's two basic questions to ask. What are we looking for? And we should be wary of fishing expeditions simply because it's too easy to catch trash fish. Um, and if we find what we're looking for, the second question, what will we do differently? And if the data won't change what you'll do, I don't think we should be seeking uh, the data. If you are well, I think we've got to expect more and more opportunity to collect data on yourself. There's just very strong forces, very interested in these markets right now, to collect more data either on monitoring or on the genetics side. And we should recognize that having more data may not be in our interest. It's just, I think, a very basic thing to understand, because it certainly doesn't make sense to get more data if you don't know what the data mean, and you absolutely have no clue about what you would do uh, next. Thank you very much for your attention. I'd be happy to take a few questions. No, no, less medicine, more health. It's not out yet, though, Rich. It'll so, be out yeah. then. Yeah. It'll be compressed. It'll be out next year. But uh, uh, we congratulate you on those achievements. Thank you very much. Questions for you? Yeah. Yes. So um, you talked about how the value of information is sort of a 21st century I think. tenant. I think that's right. But what also occurred to me is that patient autonomy also seems to be a really important tenant. And you know, I think there's a lot of people who really feel like this is my data and, and I deserve that. That's my right, right to get that information. And I think we feel, I, I often feel sort of stuck in the middle there where the patient's saying, this is my right to know, but we worry about what that would be like. And I wonder about you know, a screening tool for decisional preferences so that we have a tool to really help us understand what is of value to this patient, how do I understand what information is useful, and then have to reconcile with ourselves. If this patient really says, yes, I want everything, how do we reconcile that? Yeah. Well, I, I think one thing is, is, is we need to help patients understand that we are just talking data and, and how noisy data has some real downsides. Uh, but I agree, that's a long, long process. Um, and, but I think it's one we need to start doing now because there's so many people interested in selling more data. And um, so I, I think we need to begin to add, try to add some more balance uh, to the system with the presumption that, that more data and more monitoring is, is going to be in people's uh, thing. But I, I, I understand that's an uphill, uphill battle, but I think it's one we need to take on. Yeah. Risk of being even more depressing. Um, uh, I wanted to get your response to the following. Um, I think that there is not only bad, you know, in, uh, not useful data, but there's a lot of incorrect data. Yeah. And I think that all you have to do is look at a templated PDH note <laughs> to, to, to know that a lot of the data that we're presented with and trying to make decisions about is just simply incorrect. And there you're talking about data on the patient's story and symptoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom. This is a little off topic, but I'm That's okay. concerned that I see a parallel here 
too much information, too much data not being helpful. The last time I had my annual review to talk about inaccurate information about my hand washing, <laughs> how many of my visits were closed, and nothing about the adequacy of my judgments right. or this real satisfaction with the substantive part of my medical right. practice. I'm concerned that we are also too many of us worshiping at the wrong information. Right. Well, I, 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 let me let me guess that there's a lot of general support for that <laughs> comment. Is that would that be? Yeah. Right. And, and I agree. I mean, this is this is part of looking for easily collectible data. You know, that, that we, we 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 tend to excessively value what we can. You know what. We, we, we value what's easily measurable, uh, and, and that, that's a huge problem. And, and that's a problem both in measuring performance, but it's, it's also true in our clinic settings that, that, that I, I think we, we tend to default to things that we feel are more hard, and even though we recognize they may not be as important. So it's a, it, I, I totally get the problem. Brian? I'm sorry. Who's who's in charge here? You're in charge. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 okay. You, you may like this. Isn't actually a true story? But in medical school, I invented a technique called dim lighting. Dim lighting. So instead of oh. a, a, a magic marker to highlight stuff, I would take a black magic marker and cross out what I didn't want to know. Oh, <laughs> that, that, that's a great one. Yeah. yeah, yeah to, to, to black out. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I only have like one word left on the table. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very good. I, I do like that. Yeah. Dim lighting. Yeah. So you, you've talked uh, brilliantly, as usual, about the misapplication of data at the individual level, and some of that being guided based on the look at big data. So we're talking, of course, more and more about the utility of big data. Do you think, is there such a thing as TMI for big data? Um, no. Uh, well, of course, I'm a big data guy. Right. So, uh, so that, that, so I may be conflicted on this point. But, but of course, my interest is now uh, information about the individual. Um, do I think we've overstated the value of big data? Oh, sure. It's just like the human genome project. It's going to solve it. It's going to avoid our need for randomized trials and that we, you know, that we can do everything observationally. Of course, that's not right. Um, so do I think there's excessive enthusiasm on big data? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, but. I, I think it's fundamentally different to be making efforts to make information, uh, to make inferences about large groups of people. Like just a, you know, the basic question. One of the questions I was asked in the last few days is, you know, what is the uh, mortality rate of following a simple surgery for on the thyroid? You know, obviously there's a, some interest in that, you know, because there's a lot of overdiagnosis going on in some places. Uh, that's a number we ought to know. You know, but we don't. Why? Because we, there it appears in so many. You know, we, 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 I mean, to me, the biggest argument for a single payer system is simply to get some central estimates of what's actually happening in the country and how often things go wrong. You know, that's a pretty basic thing. So I'm a big believer in be, being able to make use of that kind of big data. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be the answer to all the questions of efficacy or effectiveness. Absolutely not. Um, can you can you measure things wrong in big data? Absolutely, of course you can. Can you come to spurious inferences? Absolutely, you can. So you got to you got to be uh, you got to be careful on what your inferences are. Absolutely. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for giving us this wonderful. Thank you.